Thank you all for joining me on a special episode of the Rojas Report slash Open Mind UFO Radio. We are fortunate enough to have Dr. Avi Loeb, somebody who's been in the news quite a bit regarding extraterrestrial intelligent civilizations and the possibility that perhaps an, a recent interstellar visitor uh, might have been ET technology. So he's created a stir. He's been in the media a lot. Thank you uh, for joining me, and I hope you enjoyed this interview with Dr. Avi Loeb. Oh, okay, so it's live. Yes, we are live, <laughs> and hello. Uh, thank you very much for joining me, uh, Dr. Loeb. Uh, this is a great pleasure to be able to talk to you. Thank you for having me. So I got your book from your publicist very early on, and I was so excited because I thought, Great. And, and they were like, read the book. Um, we'll try to set up an interview soon. So I was rushing through to make sure I could finish it before I got to talk to you. And time went on. And I thought I was going to be able to get my interview at the beginning of your interview cycle. It's ended up being at the end. But that's kind of neat, though, because I'm, I'm interested in how this kind of media frenzy has uh, maybe changed your perspective and views as well. Um, but first, let me do a little introduction. This is of course, many of you recognize or are aware because I've been talking about um, Dr. Avi Loeb's book for quite some time, but a astrophysicist from Harvard. Uh, and I do want to mention some of your other uh, affiliations, uh, such as a fellow at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the American Physical Society, the International Academy of Astronautics. Uh, you know, you have been a chair for the physics and astronomy uh, for a national academy. And, and the reason I want to mention all that is that you're not like some fringe guy coming out of nowhere. You are truly embedded and kind of a, a thought leader in the community. So uh, it had to have been pretty risky uh, doing this. I mean, were you, was there hesitancy on your part to say that you were feeling really confident about this controversial theory or were you really, you know, motivated? Were you like, no, this is what the, the data is showing me? And you, did you have any, you know, a trouble going there? Uh, not at all. Uh, I applied the same approach that I did to previous uh, anomalies that I saw in other areas that I studied. The, for many decades, I worked on uh, the early universe, uh, the first stars and on black holes. And you know, there are anomalies in various contexts. For example, we don't know what most of the matter in the universe is. It's called dark matter. And uh, there was an anomaly reported about the hydrogen being very cold, much colder than we expect in the early universe. And a suggestion that I made in a paper that was published in a prestigious journal was perhaps the dark matter particles have a, a small charge, electric charge, so they cool the ordinary matter, the hydrogen. Uh, and that was uh, rather speculative, but there wasn't much uh, pushback on that because, you know, it's part of the scientific process. When you see something unusual, something that doesn't quite line up with what you expect, then you have to put possibilities on the table. And then, of course, that would motivate uh, observers or experimentalists to, to try and search for more clues, more evidence and rule out. Uh, the possibilities that do not stand up to the scrutiny. Uh, and that is the scientific process. You know, there is nothing unusual about it. And that's the way we discovered new things in the past. Uh, 
you know, nobody a century ago expected quantum mechanics to be a description of reality, and it was found for experiments, and then the theorists tried to figure out what the interpretation of the experiments is, and it put a lot of people out of their comfort zone, including Albert Einstein, who argued, argued that quantum mechanics uh, shouldn't have a spooky action at a distance, but he was wrong. And so the process of the scientific learning about nature is involves uh, you know, unusual uh, evidence that you try to explain and you put possibilities on the table and then you rule out by additional evidence those that do not stand up to the new evidence that you find. And that's the scientific process. There is nothing wrong about it. There, there is nothing problematic about it, except when people have prejudice. So mm -hmm. when Galileo suggested maybe the, the Earth moves around the sun, the philosophers at the time argued, no, we know that the sun moves around the earth and they refused to look through his telescope. Now that's a deviation from the scientific process and Galileo was one of the fathers of the current scientific process. And, um, and you know, we're talking about evidence and not about speculations that come out of the blue. So when this object that we will talk about, Oumuamua, uh, had some unusual properties that do not line up with what we expected. That's when I came about, you know, and, and suggested maybe it's of artificial origin because of the evidence, because of the clues. And I, I didn't, have an, didn't have any concerns about it because, uh, you know, it's just the same approach that I used for many years before. And the fact that there was a lot of pushback has to do with my colleagues more than with me. I didn't change much. Yeah, and you know, uh, definitely some of the criticism uh, of your uh, theory has left kind of the realm of sciences as well, and it's gotten pretty personal. Um, right. Even some very uh, well-known, you know, writers, science writers, have gotten, you know, they've very away from the, the scientific arguments, but gotten very personal. Are you surprised by that or were you expecting yeah, that? I'm, I'm disappointed by that because, uh, you know, we should all be focusing on the ball rather than the audience, okay? Uh, we should be focusing on the evidence. And I highly respect those scientists that uh, wrote scientific papers trying to explain the anomalies of Oumuamua, this object, in terms of uh, a natural origin, and they came up with specific suggestions that they analyzed through equations and, you know, suggested putting something else, another alternative on the table. Now, all of these possibilities, there are three of them, uh, have major flows. Okay, so I, tr I wrote a rebuttal uh, a paper uh, about one of them that explains why it doesn't work, for example. And, you know, that's, that's again, part of the scientific process. But what is not part of the scientific process is going on Twitter and attacking personally, you know, and that is not uh, relevant because, you know, first of all, if you think about the big picture, you know, nature doesn't care about whether we say one thing or another. Nature is whatever it is, and we are all supposed to try and figure out what it is. And all I was saying is perhaps there is a relic of a technological equipment that passed near Earth and the way to find out is, of course, next time we see something like that, you know, and we should see within a few years another one or mo many more. Uh, next time we see, we should take a photograph. What's the big deal? You know, like <laughs> there is nothing more commonsensical than that, trying to get more evidence next time around. And instead, 
you get people extremely upset that this possibility was even mentioned, contemplated, or suggested in a scientific paper, by the way. I didn't just make up the suggestion in the blue, you know, like, or write a, a blog about it, or uh, put it in a book. There was uh, th there are many papers that I wrote about Oumuamua that can all be found on my website. And these are scientific papers. So I don't see why people should complain that the scientific discourse includes in it the possibility of interpreting anomalies of an object in terms of technological artifact. Why is that offensive to so many people? The only way I can understand that is either that they are, uh, you know, uh, not willing to discuss this possibility because they want to preserve their image and they put themselves on a pedestal relative to the public that is interested in other, you know, like unidentified flying objects. Or, But again, this is irrelevant because, you know, in, if you go to ancient history, there was a popular view that the human body has a soul and therefore anatomy should be forbidden. But uh, imagine if science would say, oh, this is a controversial subject. There are lots of claims uh, out there about the human body. We don't want to dissect it at all. Where would modern medicine be? You know, that's inappropriate for science to ignore a subject just because there is some controversy about it. Uh, we should apply the best scientific tools we have. We should be, and by the way, a billion dollars was invested before we detected gravitational waves. A billion, $1.1 billion by the National Science Foundation. Without that investment, we would never discover gravitational waves. And the Nobel Prize in physics was awarded for that. And moreover, gravitational waves have zero influence on our daily lives, okay? That, you know, they pass through our body, nothing happens. So I'm asking, why is the funding in the context of the search for technological signatures, relics, you know, more than a thousand times smaller than that? If the problem is so important to the public and the public funds science, wouldn't you think that there should be at least a billion dollars invested in the search for technological rights, rather than people ridiculing me and attacking me personally. How wrong, more wrong than that, could it be? You know, mm -hmm. funding it in an extremely low level, and then anyone that brings this possibility to the table is immediately attacked personally. You know, like, what are we, are we in the dark ages here? Well, I thought it was really interesting when the report on Tabby Star came out, because they had gone there. Um, they had suggested in their scientific paper that it one possibility could be something like the Dyson sphere. And it I was shocked that it was fairly well accepted. Um, however, uh, you know, when there was a, a couple of years ago at a SETI conference, there was one of the scientists who did a, a lecture on techno signatures and kind of around the xenoarchaeology or exoarchaeology, some of the different terms being used for, for that. And the he got a lot of media attention. It wasn't accurate, and he really shied away from it. He was really terrified by the feedback because, yes. unfortunately, they were misrepresenting well, what okay. he was trying so to that, say. That, that, that is a very important insight that you just brought up because I think the public is starved by the science community on this subject. The public cares about it. A lot and you know the success of my book it became a bestseller shortly after it appeared in many countries the success is a result of the public being starved on this subject by the scientific community and i think it's completely inappropriate because you know it's not as if the scientific community is supposed to censor the public's interest instead it should respond to the public interest and if we have the 
instrumentation, you know, the, the telescopes to search for technological relics, we should use them for that purpose because we are supposed to echo the public's interest rather than uh, worry about, you know, uh, how many angels can sit on the tip of a pin, you know, like all kinds mm -hmm. of questions that show that we are smart, but do not necessarily echo an interest from the public. You know, there are many such questions, uh, you know, working in, on the mathematics of anti-de-sitter space. You know, what effect does it have on you, uh, on people's lives? Or uh, uh, arguing that the dark matter is an axion, you know, which is a mainstream discussion in the scientific community. Again, what the dark matter has zero impact on our daily lives. Um, you know, there are lots of such questions and the scientific community, the mainstream is occupied just with those questions. And when you deal with a question that the public is extremely curious about, no, we should shy away from that. We should shy away from the limelight. It's as if you go to the darkness so the public cannot see what you're doing. I don't understand that. If the public cares about it, you know, I don't feel that I'm on a pedestal relative to, I don't think that science is uh, an occupation of the elite. It's a way of life, you know, every person should be able to understand what the scientists are doing. And in fact, the scientists should do things that people care about, okay? Mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, climate change is something that the people care about. Pandemics is something people care about. That's, you know, that is part of mainstream. But for some reason, the search for extraterrestrial, the question, are we alone? The question, is there a, a, anyone else in our neighborhood? That is being pushed to the fringes of science. And why would that be the case? And this is basically the message of my book. This is the reason I appeared on 300 interviews over the past eight weeks. You know, that's quite remarkable. I'm trying to use it as a platform, you know, and my publicist, the publicist of my book uh, in, in the UK was telling me, great job, Avi, you are, uh, making you're communicating very well with the public and the book is selling quite well and i told him look uh, i'm not trying to sell the book you have to understand that i'm trying to convey a message and if the public didn't like my message and wouldn't buy the book i wouldn't care less i would not change my message just so that the book will sell the book and my appearances are trying to convey a message and the fact that the public likes it is a good thing but but it's a byproduct you know, and I think you bring up something really important, especially for now, because as a science writer, I, I fortunately get to do some science writing and the scientific community, especially the a lot of the uh, astronauts I've spoken with and, and other NASA personnel are extremely concerned with this anti-science kind of movement that we've had. And you mentioned that the public is very interested in, well, the topic you wrote about, but also the pandemic. Um, and climate change, but that's an area where there's a large anti-science kind of group out there fighting against it. And scientists don't seem to, uh, but they blame the journalists a lot of times right. that you guys are just sensationalizing our work. But on, on our end, what I've tried to, I was even in a, a group with these Nobel scientists talking about this same topic and uh, they were so frustrated. And it's like, well, what we're trying to do is make what you do appealing trying to apply it to people's lives. And right. I think, you know, unfortunately there is no PR for science and maybe there needs to be because I think that's where our, our, we've got a breakdown. Yeah, so currently science is mostly communicated to the public by people that do not practice science. You see, that's right. the, And right. uh, I find that uh, unfortunate because uh, many of my colleagues, uh, uh, you know, avoid the limelight 
And as a result, the way that the sausages are made is not communicated. You know, most of the time science is uncertain because we don't have enough evidence. And scientists prefer the public not to know about it. They want to show the public only the final product, the sausage, without telling them how it's made. And the, the, you know, the reality of the matter is most of the time we, have, we are uncertain. There are multiple interpretations for the data. We don't know which one is the correct one. And uh, only when we have enough evidence, we are in agreement and we come out with uh, a consensus view. And that is, you know, that is something the public should know. The public should see the stages. You know, there are early stages where you don't know what you're talking about. And the public should be aware of that because scientists don't always know what they're talking. So I feel as if, you know, I'm the kid that says uh, the emperor has no clothes in a way. But, <laughs> but you know, I'm, I'm the kid. Uh, that says that, and and that's the truth, you know, that science is work in progress, and I think the public should be engaged. And by the way, I told my publisher that uh, I will be happy, satisfied, if there is one person uh, around the globe that after reading my book will become a scientist. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I got an email from uh, Malawi in, in Africa from a woman that said that your book is great, and I'm thinking about becoming an astronomer. So I told her the story about the, the publisher, the exchange I had, and asked her, are you the one? Are you that one person? <laughs> and she said, maybe, either me or my daughter. I so would not be surprised. Right, that's what I wanted to say. <laughs> I'm sure your book has inspired quite a few people. But I guess let's get into kind of a little bit of the meat of the situation. Um, Oumuamua, an object, the first uh, we've detected, um, that is interstellar to come into our solar system and then exit. And of course we saw, we didn't catch glimpse of it till it was on its way out. Um, and you know, it had some strange properties. You said it could be three things, two of those, the, the conventional, you know, the assumption a comet or an asteroid. Um, and, but you've made the argument that those don't fit a comet. It's obvious. You, comet looks like a comet, you know, it's, it's got a, it's halo of, of debris. Um, so the other possibility could be asteroids because they do tumble, but this was definitely very different than an asteroid. And like you mentioned, it deviated. And I think that's the big theme that you, you mentioned. And, and I agree with you that I haven't seen any scientists really tackling your argument for the deviation and how that might've happened in a manner that um, addresses all of the, the things that you've brought up. Um, but I guess analyzing that. So for instance, one possibility for the movement that you have highlighted uh, was uh, outgassing. So maybe a pocket of ice or something that that dissolved and pushed the object. But as you noted, um, the tumble didn't change after this deviation, which is, it seems like any outgassing, it would be impossible for the tumble not to change. Right, well, that's one thing, but also the uh, force that was pushing it uh, changed smoothly, inversely mm. with distance squared. And usually what happens with outgassing, if you have uh, water ice on the surface, there is a certain distance from the sun where the ice doesn't really evaporate anymore and you get a cutoff in the push. And uh, in, in fact, Oumuamua reached that distance and no cutoff was observed. So it was a smooth dependence inversely with distance squared, just like you expect by reflection of sunlight giving the push. Um, I should say there was one uh, suggestion that uh, perhaps it's made 
of pure hydrogen. This object is a hydrogen iceberg. That was one of the models proposed by astronomers that I value because they try to come up with an explanation. And if it's made purely of hydrogen, then uh, hydrogen is transparent. You could have a cometary tail without seeing it. The only problem with this idea, we are talking about an object roughly the size of a football field, a few hundred feet. And such an object made of pure hydrogen would get evaporated very quickly by absorbing starlight along its journey. And it wouldn't survive the, the, the trip from its origin. We've never seen hydrogen icebergs. So that's an example of a scientific idea that was put forward rather than attacking me personally, just coming up with a, an alternative explanation of this, of this anomaly. But we wrote a scientific paper showing that it doesn't work because a hydrogen iceberg would get evaporated. Uh, there was another suggestion more recently, maybe it's not hydrogen, maybe it's nitrogen, pure nitrogen. For that, you need to separate nitrogen from carbon. I mean, usually nitrogen and carbon come together. They are produced by the same process in stars, in stellar interiors. And, uh, and the Spitzer Space Telescope put very tight limits on any carbon-based molecules around this object. So really, it, it, this doesn't hold together you know this uh, interpretation there was another suggestion maybe it is uh, a cloud of dust particles that are very loosely bound you know sort of like a dust bunny uh, that you find at home uh, and then it's very lightweight so the reflection of sunlight would give it the push that you need uh, the problem with that is it, uh, when umoma got close to the sun it was heated by hundreds of degrees and and such a fluffy a dust cloud that is a hundred times less dense than air, that's what you need, uh, would not have the material strength to hold together, uh, to have the integrity of maintaining a, a rigid uh, structure. Uh, and so, uh, you know, these alternatives, and there was another one that it's a piece of uh, another, a bigger object that was ripped apart uh, as it was passing close to a star. And the problem with that is usually you get elongated the pieces from the tidal force of a star. And the best model for Oumuamua was pancake shape at the 90% confidence. So all of these alternative interpretations uh, had major flaws and that led me to conclude in my book that you know the, the possibility of an artificial origin should be put on the table. What's the problem with that? You know, and we should, it, what it implies is that even though Muamua left and we didn't get enough data on it, you know, it's now a million times fainter than it was, there would be more li like it that we will find because, you know, we just observed the sky for a few years and we found this one. So if we observe for another few years, we'll find another one. When I go to the kitchen and I find an ant, I, I get alarmed because there must be many more out there. And so, mm -hmm. uh, all we need to do is next time around when we detect something in advance, you know, we should send a spacecraft with a camera that would intercept its trajectory and take a close-up photo. And, you know, a, a picture is worth a thousand words. In my case, a picture is worth 66,000 words, the number of words in my book. <laughs> I think that's a really important point. And when I've talked to people, a lot of them have a misperception and I'll bring up this picture. A lot of them have seen this image, and this is an image right. from NASA's website on Oumuamua. And they're like, well, I thought it was a rock. It looks like a rock. And I explain that, you know, <laughs> like you, you talked about, it could have been, a photo is important because it could have been obvious from observation that it was, uh, if it was something manufactured 
Well, let, let me explain. So this uh, this uh, artist illustration came about because, uh, uh, you know, as, as the object was tumbling, the brightness of the object changed by a factor of 10. So projected on the sky, it was at least 10 times longer than it is wide. But, you know, this is true also of a piece of paper tumbling in the wind, you know, as, as it... Uh, as, as you get it to tumble, um, you know, projected on the sky, you would you could see it as if it looks like this elongated object, you know, like something very elongated. But in reality, it is a flat object, and that was the best fit to the variation in the light reflected from the object at the 90% confidence. And this is a paper published in December 2019 by Sergei Maschenko, showing that uh, the best fit to the light curve is that of a flat object. So pancake shape, not uh, not uh, cigar shape, but projected on the sky, of course, when it's tumbling, you know, it looks very long compared to how wide it is. So that is what we know about this object, that at the 90% confidence, it was flat, not cigar shape. And then the question is, you know, can you imagine a flat rock that is at least 10 times longer than it is wide and, uh, you know, that is pushed by reflecting sunlight. Now, in September 2020, uh, just, a, you know, less than half a year ago, there was another object discovered that is pushed by reflection of sunlight and doesn't show any cometary tail. And this object was also discovered by PANSTARS, the same telescope that discovered Oumuamua. And then the astronomers that found it realized that if you go back in time, it was actually launched from Earth in 1966. It's a rocket booster that was part of uh, the Lunar Lander Surveyor 2 mission. And we know that we produced it uh, artificially. I mean, it had thin walls and was hollow, and that's why sunlight reflecting off it gave it a push. Uh, in the case of Oumuamua, we don't know who produced it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do want to mention, too, uh, and, and thank you for that. I think that that clears up a lot of things for people, um, that it was most likely flat. So it could have been shaped just like that object or similar to the object that you, you demonstrated. We just don't know. And with a photograph, we would have known. Exactly. And a photograph has uh, offers the advantage. First of all, you can tell if it's natural or not, you know, from the way it looks, the structure. But second, you can decide at that point whether it's worth uh, you know, landing on such an object, because if it's a piece of equipment, you know, that may be more advanced than anything we developed, because we had our technologies only for a hundred years, you know, we can decide to land on something like that. And imagine, you know, getting our hands around a, an advanced technology that is, re that represents something that we might develop in our future, you know, like a million years from now, or we can shortcut history and get a glimpse at something that we will potentially develop in a million years. You know, that could be amazing. And I, I talk about it in my book that uh, there is this Oumuamua's wager, which basically says, you know, if it is a piece of technology, the implications are so great that we just cannot ignore that possibility. So not only that I should not be ridiculed uh, on a personal level, but we should consider that possibility and invest funds in, in, in searching for more objects of the same and, and looking at them closely. You know, so we should do much more, not much less. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, that is my point. And, you know, I just don't understand why people would avoid that. It's as if they say, let's remain ignorant, you know. Having done these 300 interviews, 
what has changed about your perception of of the public's perception of your work and uh, your theory? Well, the public is extremely interested and excited, and I had a very intelligent uh, dialogue with the public, with people that have asked questions, both people with scientific and technological expertise and people that do not have that. And, and in both camps, I, I re received very insightful uh, uh, questions and comments, and uh, that inspired me to write a number of uh, Scientific American articles, some of which already appeared and some are in the pipeline uh, uh, over the, you know, over the past uh, couple of months, I wrote uh, maybe um, about six of them, and uh, uh, some of them are not yet published, uh, but uh, all of them are listed on, on, on my website. And uh, uh, the point is that, um, uh, you know, it's inspiring for me to speak with uh, everyone, especially the public, because the public is curious without a prejudice. And uh, as part of the dialogue, I get uh, new ideas. and. Uh, if you block your options, if you basically say, I don't want to discuss it, and you read it, you, know, you bully anyone that discusses it, you know, I find that really surprising because it keeps you ignorant, <laughs> just like the philosophers at the time of, of Galileo. And of course, you know, people say, oh, we, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. That, that's, of, that's exactly what I'm saying. Let's get more evidence. But if you say you know in advance that it's never aliens, then you will not get that evidence. My point is, extraordinary conservatism leads to extraordinary ignorance. I love that saying. That's a great one. And that is novel, uh, certainly. Uh, I was going to say, one, one observation I had from reading your book, a couple of things. But one thing that I enjoyed about it, there was a familiarity in, in some of it, in that, of course, I do cover the UFO topic. And the scientists in the past, I do this lecture about how astronomers started modern um, UFO research. They really did, including with this Dr. Alan Hynek, who had this television show, which distorted his life. But that they made similar arguments to the uh, astronomical and scientific community that, you know, about being closed minded and, and not. Um, just what you had just said about the ignorance that happens. And certainly it's interesting that many of the books I'm talking about are decades old. Yours is brand new, but you're still having to make this argument and still having to fight this fight with the academia. Yeah, I find that uh, really uh, unfortunate because uh, right now, we, well, we know more, more facts about the universe. We know that roughly half of the sun-like stars have a planet the size of the Earth, roughly at the same separation. So, you know, if you arrange for similar circumstances, you might as well get similar outcomes. So not only that we are not at the center of the universe as advocated by Aristotle, the ancient Greek philosopher, but also our backyard is quite common, the Earth-Sun system. And uh, that to me is uh, very encouraging news. You know, it teaches us once again modesty, that we shouldn't think that we are privileged and unique and special because conditions that we find around us are common. And uh, why would we believe that we are the only ones? Now, of course, there may not be uh, living civilizations that, with which we can communicate because they are short-lived. That's, that's possible. If they, are, they develop technologies, they also develop the means for their own destruction. You know, we cannot have uh, a phone conversation with the Mayans. Uh, the Mayan culture is not around anymore, but we can find relics that they left behind in archaeological digs. And the same, in, in much the same way, we can, we can do space archaeology. Instead of going out and listening to radio signals, as we have been doing for 70 years, 
you know, there is this Drake equation, which is fundamental for this search, but there are lots of coefficients there that are highly uncertain. And if those civilizations are short-lived, most of them are dead by now, and we can't have a conversation, we can't get radio signals. And uh, instead, what Oumuamua gives us is a wake-up call that, you know, there are interstellar objects visiting the solar system, and by looking at them, you know, it's just like looking at objects that arrive from the street into your backyard. You know, they make the they made the trip. You don't need to make the trip. It takes a long time to visit stars, but uh, they already made that trip and they arrived at your doorstep. So the natural thing is to examine them, take photographs, and whenever you see a plastic bottle instead of a rock, you say, well, that's interesting. Let's check it out. But you can't say it's always rocks because then you would resemble this caveman that says, you know, when presented with a cell phone says, oh, it's a shiny rock. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the people in the chat is asking uh, that this object was uh, probably out there for tens of thousands of years. Um, and so he thinks that the solar sail hypothesis from an advanced civilization seems kind of strange. But I think you're arguing it doesn't necessarily it had to have been sent directly to us. It could be space junk. Right, exactly. Uh, I mean, we launched uh, Voyager 1, Voyager 2, New Horizons, and other probes uh, out of the solar system. And imagine what would be their fate in a billion years or a few billion years. You know, they wouldn't be functional anymore. And uh, most stars formed billions of years before the sun. And as a result, you know, uh, they predated us and they sent out equipment into space and we shouldn't, most of this equipment would be just like plastic bottles on a beach. You know, they have, they're punctured, they have holes, they're not functional anymore because they suffered a lot of uh, uh, damage during their trajectory, uh, during their lifetime. And uh, that's what we should expect from most of the stuff we find in space. And therefore arguing that it was tumbling and therefore not in control, you know, that's uh, quite uh, expected because I wouldn't expect it to be spying on us. By the way, I don't think that we are sufficiently interesting for anyone to spy on us. And of course, you know, 10,000 years ago, we, would, we were even less interesting. So when this object started its journey into the solar system, it was more than 10,000 years ago. Uh, but I believe that most of the objects we find will be billions of years old because they travel throughout the galaxy and sort of there is a population of them sort of like the space debris that we live around the earth you know there is a lot of debris going there and, and or like plastic bottles in the oceans you know they keep accumulating over time and we just don't know what is out there unless we we search so without the prejudice without always saying it must be a rock it's never aliens let's just check what what is more natural than looking for evidence you know Mm-hmm. You got very personal in the book, too, getting back into your childhood and how it's kind of always been an interest uh, and inspiration for you to look for uh, potential life out there. That's right. Uh, I don't separate my science from my life. Uh, for me, science is a way of life. And, uh, uh, you know, when I have a problem uh, with a, a pipe at home and I try to figure it out with a plumber, you know, I approach it exactly as a scientist. You know, we look for the clues and then try to figure out what's the problem and solve it. And I don't see science any different than uh, applying common sense as, and looking at the, gu being guided by the evidence. Of course, it has uh, some mathematical aspect to it that uh, makes it a little more sophisticated and uh, daily activities. But 
But, you know, it's not really essential. Uh, if you understand what nature is doing, you know, you're trying to figure out how to explain the evidence based on the clues that we, ha that, that we have. And, and that's uh, the way I approach my life, you know, on a, on a daily basis. So for me, uh, you know, everything that I went through during my life is contributing to my scientific work. And in particular, when I was young, um, you know, I was very much connected to nature because I grew up on a farm. So I developed a special connection to uh, nature, to uh, more than to people, you know, more than to social interactions. And that's why nowadays I don't really care how many likes I have on Twitter. I, I jog every morning at 5 a.m. in the company of rabbits, ducks and birds, and I enjoy that. And irrespective of whether it snows or rains, uh, you know, I, I take whatever nature gives me. And that's my attitude also towards the scientific exploration. You know, whatever, if nature gives us anomalies, we should be delighted about it because we can learn something new. You know, there was a seminar at Harvard uh, about Oumuamua, and when I left the room with a colleague of mine, he said that this object is so weird, I wish it never existed. And I was <laughs> appalled by this because uh, it should be exactly the opposite attitude. You're not supposed to always relax and assume that what you know is what you will find. In fact, when you see something unexpected, it should be thrilling. You know, it's exciting. Why should science be boring, by the way? I'm, I never understood that. And, uh, you know, if, if there is something new coming along that is you didn't expect, that is an opportunity to learn something new and it makes science worth doing. I don't care about science as a vehicle to promote our ego, as, as a way to convince other people that we are smart, or that we deserve a honor or an award or a label, you know, that is completely irrelevant. Uh, what we need to care about is understanding nature. And by the way, that's also what the public cares about. So I think we are all in it together. You know, if we develop a vaccine to uh, COVID-19, you know, it's, it's to be shared by all of us. And the, the way I see science, you know, in economics, there is this idea of a zero sum game where if someone uh, gains a profit, then someone else loses. Uh, but I think of science as an infinite sum game in the sense that if you produce some new knowledge, everyone benefits. So it can go to infinity. You know, the more you add, the better everyone is. So it's, we are all in it together in the context of science. It involves collaborations. And it shouldn't, it shouldn't feel as if we are fighting each other and saying, no, you're not allowed to say that. You're not allowed to... Okay, well, if you have another interpretation for the anomalies, write a scientific paper. Don't write it on Twitter. Write a scientific paper that explains the anomalies in terms of something natural, and we will be done with that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, why get personal? Why, why uh, ridicule? Why get so emotional about it? It's, it's you know, we're just trying to figure out what this unusual object is. Mm -hmm. So you must have been excited, uh, such as... I was certainly and many interested in these sort of topics when Yuri Milner decided to start his breakthrough programs. And of course, you got to be involved with that. And one great part of the book is how you had this limited amount of time to come up with the Starshot project, um, something I had been really excited about. Uh, and I'm excited to talk to you about updates on that project, but essentially using these little solar sails, which is what you feel Oumuamua might have been, uh, which is essentially 
just actually they they even had it on Star Trek, but uh, you know this little uh, sail that's being pushed by uh, the by photons, either by laser or by yes. the sun or something like that. By reflection of light, yes. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, this is a technology that can either use uh, the the sun, uh, but then uh, the speed that you can uh, reach is not very high. By the way, in my book, I talk about the possibility that it can use also the flash of light from an exploding star, a supernova. Mm. If you park light sails in the vicinity of a massive star that is about to explode, mm. then uh, the flash of light can push those light sails close to the speed of light. And uh, that's quite remarkable. It's just like those surfers that are waiting for a giant wave on the beaches of Hawaii, and then they surf on it. So you can do that from a natural source of light, uh, an exploding star and reach close to the speed of light. And then you will, just like dandelion seeds, you know, that are carried by the wind, these sails will be carried by the flash of light uh, into the galaxy as a whole. Um, but um, this, uh, what we proposed uh, to Yuri Miller, and that's uh, the project Starshot uh, that I'm leading is, uh, uh, to use a, a laser beam in pushing a, a light sail, roughly the size of a person that weighs uh, only a gram or so. And uh, within a few minutes with a laser beam of 100 gigawatt, it can reach a fifth of the speed of light uh, over a distance that is five times the distance to the moon. And then if you uh, send it in the direction of the nearest star, for example, Proxima Centauri, uh, it could get there within... 20 years, uh, so that's within our lifetime. If we were to use uh, rocket technology of the type that NASA employed in all the missions until now, then it would take 50,000 years to reach the nearest star. And uh, obviously we're not that patient uh, it, because we should have sent it when the first humans left Africa in order for it to reach uh, Proxima Centauri right now. So uh, obviously, you know, this, Technology allows us to learn more about our environment faster. And uh, hopefully, you know, we're now working on uh, developing the or overcoming the challenges that it poses. Uh, and I wouldn't deny that my imagination uh, is limited to what I'm uh, experiencing, you know. So uh, in a way, uh, that was preparation for me working on this project uh, allowed me to imagine that perhaps uh, Oumuamua is being pushed by sunlight. Mm -hmm. I like the surfing analogy and there's actually it's Saturday and just down the street from here, I'm in Encinitas, tons of surfers fighting for waves right now. <laughs> um, but uh, I think that um, the solar sail question, actually somebody asked a question in the chat, chat, would it be possible to create a solar sail to send to catch up to Oumuamua? Uh, yeah, in principle, if we had the technology, that would be an ideal use of uh, uh, of, of, of a light sail, uh, uh, for example, uh, pushed by a laser beam, a powerful laser beam. Uh, uh, but unfortunately, we don't have it yet. Uh, uh, but what we should do, I think, is, uh, you know, have an advance warning for future objects that belong to the same class. And there will be the Vera Rubin Observatory that will uh, become operational in less than uh, three years. And uh, it would be much more sensitive to objects of the size of a more, more reflecting sunlight and could alert us of such objects a year in advance when they are still approaching us rather than uh, moving away from us. And uh, if that's the case, if we have a year of uh, warning time, we could uh, 
contemplate sending a mission that will intercept their trajectory. And if you come with a four-inch uh, camera, if you come within uh, roughly a distance of, uh, comparable to the diameter of the Earth from such an object, uh, which is roughly the size of a football field, uh, a few hundred feet, then uh, you should be able to resolve it with that camera. You should be able to get an image with multiple pixels. And uh, that should be our goal because, uh, uh, you know, that, that is the kind of information that will conclusively demonstrate uh, that it's not a natural object, if it is not a natural. And uh, there should be many out there and uh, we should just go and search uh, you know, for more and, and every time we see an unusual one, we should examine it and get as much uh, information about it as possible. So I'm really guided by evidence and I want to get more evidence, more information. Uh, the only way we will not get that information is if people know the answer in advance, if they say it's always rocks and we don't want to discuss it, only then we will remain ignorant about it. Mm -hmm. Um. I know that you've got to go, so we've got to wrap up. So I guess I'll, I'll kind of get to a, a UFO question, just because I'm sure you've gotten a lot of these sort of questions. And uh, But my question is, you know, there's been a lot of news about uh, the Pentagon actually spending some money looking into some of these incidents that have happened. Um, there uh, is... A group I work with, the scientific community of UAP studies, that has gotten scientists who have come out of the woodwork because of that and gotten interested in looking more into these kind of things. Do you think that is appropriate? And do you think, you know, there should be these sort of organizations to look into, not just like Oumuamua, but also some of these uh, alleged, you know, more closer incursions to uh, our airspace? Well, definitely. I think that... Um, uh rather than obsess with uh, Pentagon reports that were based on testimonial uh, evidence and uh, uh, on equipment that uh, was not optimized for the purpose uh, of finding unusual phenomena, and also equipment that is decades old, you know, and by now we have much better cameras, much better audio sensors, and my approach to this is rather than worry about what the document said, we should just, uh, de if, if, for anyone that cares about this question, we should deploy uh, state-of-the-art instrumentation, including uh, the best cameras we have right now, and a lot of them, and the audio sensors in the same locations where the reports came from, and see if we detect anything unusual. And, you know, rather than uh, rely on testimonial evidence, uh, because of, uh, you know, this, this example that I, I often like to give about the, the biblical story of Abraham that uh, uh, heard the voice of God and the, the voice of God told him to sacrifice his only son, uh, Isaac. And uh, if Abraham had a cell phone with a voice memo app, uh, he could have pressed the button and recorded the voice of God. And we would all know if that story really happened. But instead, he didn't have a cell phone. So we have to decide whether to believe his testimony. And uh, that's uh, the, the analogy I make with reports that are based on people's impressions or people's people using equipment that was not optimized for the purpose. And I think rather than do that, we should actually use uh, the best equipment we have and go to the same locations. And, you know, science is about reproducibility. You have to get, uh, you, you have to be able to reproduce results because otherwise you don't know whether to believe them. And uh, by going to these locations where the reports came from and using the best instrumentation, we should be able to find out. And 
you know, why not uh, just do that uh, in, in a purely scientific method, uh, way? I love your answer. And that's what I love about science. It's proactive. It's we don't need to rely. We need to gather our own data to analyze. And it's similar to conversations with the scientists. It's it's more government documents aren't scientific data. We need to figure out how to go get that data. So I, I think that's definitely and you said the same thing, how we have to deal with potential Oumuamu is in the future. Right. And it should all be in the open. You see, there shouldn't be any concerns about conspiracy of the government hiding things. No, it should be all in the open because science is in the open, you know, and, and um, the only issue here is funding to get the best instrumentation deployed in those locations. And what's the big deal? You know, I think it can be done if the right people are providing the funds and, and the right people are doing the experiment. Uh, so I'm all in favor of getting more evidence to guide us rather than uh, arguing forever about whether something that someone said is correct or not. Well, I'm sorry I kept you over a couple minutes. This uh, has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us this morning. It was a great pleasure. Thank Good you. Good luck with the book. Excellent book. I loved it. Uh, the cover is beautiful, too. I, but uh, excellent book. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, everybody, for joining. And, of course, we will talk with you all later.